This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. 1 Peter chapter 2. Now we've been in 1 Peter for a little while already just because, you know, you actually start picking this stuff apart and studying it in depth rather than just trying to get in a daily Bible reading. And uh, it leaps out at you with all kinds of meaning. And it's not meaning that we're injecting into it. It's full of its own meaning. And that's what we're looking to explore. And so 1 Peter chapter 2 We began at the beginning of chapter 2 where he says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. Now, that's actually something he's telling us to do. It's not something he's saying that newborn babes do by default, although they do. He's saying as newborn babes, comma, desire the sincere milk of the word. He's telling us to desire it, that ye may grow thereby, If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And I think we shared this a couple weeks ago. If you've been saved more than five minutes, you have tasted and seen. If you've been saved at all, you have tasted and seen that the Lord is gracious. To whom, verse 4, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now, there's a couple of things that we covered at length in the last Bible study. Part of it was this metaphor that he's using, if, if you want to call it a metaphor, that he's using as far as us being lively stones built up as a spiritual house together. If you remember that, we kind of pointed at this wall, talked and used that sort of as a as a excuse me, as a launching pad for talking about how, you know, none of the blocks in this wall have some sort of a problem with another one of the blocks in this wall. They're just blocks in a wall. And together, all put together, you know, alone, they're just a block sitting out there, something for a car to hit and blow its suspension out. But built up together, they become something more than just a block. They become a wall, a supporting structure for part of something that is greater than they themselves as just blocks are. And so he says that we are, as having come to a living stone, disallowed indeed of men. Well, we know who he's talking about there. That's Jesus Christ. That harkens back to prophecy from centuries and centuries back concerning the identity of Christ as being that stone that the builders rejected, the same as has become the head of the corner. So that's who he's talking about here. We have come unto that living stone and are now built up as lively stones. We are built up as a spiritual house. And we've talked about this before. It's good to review it. The church is not made up of the component parts of the building that we assemble in. It's the people that are in the church. It is the individuals. It's the individual believers. It's you and it's me and it's just whoever is actually a part of the fellowship, the living fellowship of believers It's us that make up the church. And I know this is kind of basic in its entry level, but Peter's dealing with basic and entry level stuff. And sometimes, and I'm convinced of this, 
It doesn't matter how long you've lived for God. It doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter if you are, they actually call it a THD. When it's a PhD in theology, it's actually called a THD. It's a doctorate in theology. Even if you're packing those kinds of credentials, you still need to have the basics reinforced again and again. Uh, not, I was going to say constantly refreshed, but periodically refreshed because it can get so easy to get lost in the deeper stuff that you forget about the most important stuff that's right up there at the, at the surface, at the entry level. The love of God, the fact that we are new creatures in Christ, praise God for that, new creatures in Christ, and so on. So, built up lively stones, built up together a spiritual house. And then he uses this phrase here, a holy priesthood. Now that's where uh, sparks should start flying, or, or at least the, uh, the, the breakers in your mind, little breaker switches in your mind should start heating up as you start to think about that. What does that mean? Did he just say that all of us are part of this royal priesthood or holy priesthood? So he says, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood. Remember that phrase to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Think on that a priesthood to offer up sacrifices. Okay, now don't freak out. We're going to tie this all up neatly so you don't think we're going to start breaking out animals and start slaughtering them here on the premises. We're not doing that. These aren't the kind of sacrifices he's talking about. And he says that these kinds of sacrifices are acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now, verse six, very next paragraph, he says, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. So he's quoting from another passage of scripture in the Old Testament, going back to the whole building block metaphor that he was talking about before. But verse seven, he says, unto you, therefore, which believe unto you that believe he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed. So here's that prophecy again. The stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. What is he talking about here? To we which believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he is our chief cornerstone. He is our foundation stone. He's the head of the corner. He's the he's every most important block in our spiritual house is Jesus Christ. Okay, but to them who do not believe, to them who have rejected, to them and it usually it speaks of to them who have rejected it. They've heard of it and they've rejected him. He says to them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same has become the head of the corner and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. That's not a new, that's not a new sentence there at verse 8, because verse, sentence, verse 7 ended in a comma. So you see how that can kind of mess you up? Think it's starting a new sentence. It's not a new sentence. It's the same sentence. So he says, the same has become the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they were also appointed. Now what does that mean? Now, we can't just skip over that, you know. So what do you mean they were appointed unto that? Does that mean that they were predestined unto that? Does that mean that they were born into that role? Now, you know what we believe on the subject of predestination. 
Okay. But it's something that's good to refresh on occasion, just to, so you don't fall into thinking that that's how God is. He's not arbitrary like that. Who is appointed to be offended and to stumble at this stone, Jesus Christ? Who is appointed? Those who do not believe. Does that mean that 20 billion years ago, God decided that Bill Watson, that's just a random name, was going to be offended and I'm appointing him to be offended. No, 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 no. That's, that's not what the language here means. It isn't. Because that is, that is so contrary to the nature of God as a just God and as a God of love, okay? It means that those who simply choose to disbelieve, well, that they as a greater group of people who choose to disbelieve, they have been appointed to that. Not because God arbitrarily selected individual people to stumble and to fail and to die lost, but because they by their own choice put themselves in that appointed category. You know what I mean? It's, it makes a whole lot more sense when you realize that that's what he's saying. And that's kind of where a lot of this predestination uh, comes in and actually falls into place rightly and a right understanding comes into it. So, all right, where are we now? Verse 9. But ye, okay, so enough of these folks that are appointed to stumble and that are going to stumble and be offended, all right? We love them, we pray for them. You know, one day the Holy Ghost will break through with them or they'll break through with the Holy Ghost and they'll believe they can be saved also. So be that, uh, that they, they turn from their unbelief and their rebellion and so on. Verse nine, but ye, you and me, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. There's that word again we're going to explore here in a moment a holy nation a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light which in times past were not a people but are now the people of God which had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy Mind blown. Anybody else? Are those breakers starting to pop now? They, they really ought to be. And if they're not, well, think on it some and, and they'll begin. As the, as the lights come on and we really appreciate what he's saying here. We are a chosen people. What was appointed, what was chosen was any who believe. That's what's been selected. That's what's been elect because that's another one of those words that people who believe so so they're just such hardliners on the on the predestination doctrine. They they love to they love to get hang hung up on that word elect. Well, I'm of the elect. I have been elected, and they think that that means selected, and they think they think that it means that they are somehow more special than those who do not believe. It's like no, there is a real nasty little thread of pride that runs through that kind of thinking. I am of the elect. And you, thou lowly sinner. Oh my goodness, you th I feel dirty even joking like that. This is nasty. Man. But, but that, that kind of thinking can creep in so, so easily to, the, to that, that sort of doctrine. Now, I'm not saying that none of those folks are saved, right? If they love the Lord and they've truly repented of their sins, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're a brother or sister too, but we don't want to fall into that same error of doctrine. Because there's, there's some nasty stuff that comes along with that. Okay, so enough of that. You are a chosen generation. That's what he's saying. 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a peculiar people. Let's break all four of those down, okay? A chosen generation. Well, does that mean that, well, I'm Generation X. Does that mean that Generation X is chosen? Well, no. And we're a culture that's just fallen in love with naming the generations that we're from, right? But the kind of generation he's talking about here has nothing to do with what year or what decade that we were born in or what series of decades we were born in. Because there are people from every single one of the aforementioned generations that are a part of this chosen generation. It is a generation not of time, but it is a generation of spirit. We have been regenerated by Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. And thus, we've been made new creatures in him. And because of that, that's the, that's the chosen generation. That's the one I want to be a part of. I don't really care to be part of that because each one of those different, each one of those generations has their particular flaws. And, and the baby boomers are no exception to that. Now they're catching a lot of hatred. There's a lot of ageism that's being expressed towards baby boomers now. And they're really being just dismissed as being self-absorbed, self-interested, and only cared about, only concerned about their health care. You know, yeah, they, we've got to that point. But you know, it's, it's coming our way too. It's coming your way too. Whatever, whatever age you are, it's, it, you're going to get there too. And then people are going to hold you in contempt because our, our country's broken and, and it really needs Jesus. But this is the generation we want to be part of. The chosen one. Generation chosen. Generation chosen. And then the very next thing here, he says is royal priesthood. Royal priesthood. Now, he already mentioned back in paragraph two, he says in verse 5, Ye then, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted to God by Jesus Christ. What do priests do? Now, some of you have heard preaching on this before. What do priests do? The role of a priest, okay? I'm not talking about the witch doctor that they sing that song about or, or, or people like that, but in general, the role of a priest, if you just strip it down to its rawest definition, okay, is a mediator. It is a representative that goes to God on behalf of another person, okay? Let's simplify that. Someone who goes to God on behalf of man. That is what a priest is. In the Old Testament, that's what the priests of the Old Testament did. They went to God on behalf of man. They were the ones that, that took the animal sacrifice and and slew it, there you go, uh, uh, killed it, slaughtered it, parted, you know, partitioned it up and, and laid it out on the altar and then burnt it as a burnt offering, whether it was a sin offering or whether it was a peace offering, you know, or whatever type of offering it was, a wave offering, a heave offering, all these different kinds of offerings that were prescribed back there in the law of Moses. It was the priest whose role, it was the priest's role to offer those things up on behalf of other people. Now, before the religion of the Jews was codified, back before that, people would offer up their own sacrifices. They would offer up their own animal sacrifices from the time of Adam all the way up until the time of Moses. And then that priesthood of his brother Aaron was established, and that whole tribe of Levi was uh, stepped into that role. It was appointed to them to be priests. Okay, well... And so much of the law in the Old Testament being a shadow of the stuff that we live and experience now in spirit in the New Testament, it raises a question. Well, where are the priests of the New Testament? Let that question set for a second. 
Where are the priests of the New Testament? And the simple answer is they're sitting in this room. Every one of you. You're a priest of the Most High God. Now the first thing that our mind thinks of when we hear the word priest is um, you know, Father Flanagan with the with the slick looking black shirt and trousers and the white collar and all that. We automatically think of that image when we hear the word priest. Or if we come from whatever culture you come from, maybe you think of an Orthodox priest or perhaps a Lutheran priest or an Episcopalian priest. But really, they're ministers, yes, but they're not the only ones who are priests. And this is something that certain denominations really balk about. They don't like talking about this at all. And, and people are afraid to think of themselves. A lot of Believers are afraid to think of themselves as priests because when you start thinking of yourself as a priest of the Most High God, priest or priestess, whatever your language you know, wants to accommodate for, when you start thinking of yourself like that, it really sobers you up to the seriousness of your role as a believer. It lays upon you a certain responsibility that spooks some people. But it's not supposed to spook us. What it's supposed to do is inspire in us. And that's what Peter's doing here. It's supposed to inspire something in us to rise up to that level. Do you see what we're saying? So he calls us a chosen people or a chosen generation. That ought to make us feel good right there. Okay, and Certainly we want to feel good. Nobody likes to feel bad. Weird people like to feel bad. I don't understand that. But... That should make us feel good. We know we're part of a chosen generation as Christians. We're part of a chosen generation. But now he lays on the responsibility right here, a royal priesthood. You're a royal priesthood. That wasn't just reserved for ministers. That's for all of us, man. That doesn't mean that everyone is called into a ministerial role as far as preaching or teaching or what have you. But it does mean that we have a responsibility to play the role, not just play the role, I hate to put it like that, but to, to execute the role of a priest. That's a mediator. Well, I thought that the Bible said there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. Yes, but we, we're not the ones forgiving sins, and it's not our blood that's been shed, but it's we who go to God in prayer for people, don't we? That's where the rubber really hits the road on this whole idea, this whole teaching of us being priests of the New Testament. We are people who go to God on behalf of other people. That's what intercessory prayer is. When you pray for someone that you love, when you pray for some stranger that you never, that you, that perhaps you met, or maybe never even did meet, but if there's a situation that you heard about, when you pray for them, you are acting in the role of a priest interceding on behalf of someone else. Wow, right? Wow. And not just that, but he talks about, let's go back to, to paragraph two. Let's go back to where he says, when he says we're a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Okay, well, if I'm not offering up animal sacrifices, I'm supposed to be offering up spiritual sacrifices. Well, what kind of sacrifices are those? How about praise? How about thanksgiving? Man, this is still thanksgiving season. This is the whole holiday season, but this is still very much a time of thanksgiving. It's a time of thanksgiving. It's a, the whole Christmas season has always been very special. 
And it's not a vague kind of thanksgiving either. It's specifically, it is thanks to God. We don't give thanks to the universe. We don't give thanks to the cosmos. We don't give thanks to all that vague nebulous stuff that is just an exercise in so much worshiping of the creature rather than the creator. We give thanks to God from whom all blessings flow. It doesn't come from anywhere else. He might send it through someone, but it is from God. All good things around us. All right. So he says, royal priesthood. And when we offer up thanks to God, that is a spiritual sacrifice. And when we offer up real, sincere praise to him and worship of him, that is, as the Bible says, in spirit and in truth, those are spiritual sacrifices and those are acceptable to God. Those are the kinds of sacrifices that are acceptable to God and that we as priests offer up. So once more, how do we act out? How do we execute the role of a priest as being priests of the Most High God? We pray for others and we offer up sacrifices of praise and of thanks and of worship and of all of that and say, well, that doesn't really sound like sacrifice. Well, yeah, it is. You know something about prayer? It's work. It is a real labor. It is a sacrifice of your time, and that's acceptable to God. And it's a sacrifice of your attention. And the, the, the culture we live in is just always trying to, to get our attention onto other things. You know, what, whatever it may be, G good distractions or bad distractions, they're all distractions. And so when we pull our heads out of all of that and engage God in prayer, we are being a royal priesthood. Now, we could talk more about how it, what does it mean by a royal priesthood as opposed to some other kind of priesthood, but, but I want to cover some more ground here. We're royal in the sense that here, you know, our brother is King Jesus. Amen. 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 And holy nation. Now, what's a nation? You know, the first thing that comes to mind when we think of a nation is a, uh, Michael Savage uses this description of it. Uh, he's a talking head, ultra far right conservative. Uh, actually, I don't think he's all that far right, not anymore. But he uses the definition borders language culture. That's a nation. That's a, that's, that is the definition of a nation. Is It has borders. It has a uniform language, a common language. And it has a, a more or less uniform culture between all of its people. And he could argue the rightness or the wrongness of that and pick it apart. But it's, it's a good working definition for a nation. But it's not entirely correct. Not all nations have borders. Anybody know about the Basques of Spain? Well, they're an ethnicity. They're a nation that has no borders. They actually straddle Spain and France. You can read into them sometime. They're a pretty fascinating culture. Um, and in fact, they're, they're one of the oldest indigenous European groups in existence in the world. They are a borderless nation. Well, let's talk about something closer to home. Let's talk about the Cherokee are a nation. The Sioux are a nation. The Blackfoot, the Crow, the, uh, the Navajo, the Diné, which is an offshoot of the Navajo. You know, all of these different indigenous groups are nations in and of themselves. Now, they have the language and the culture. They just don't really have much in terms of the borders anymore. Those are nations without borders. A nation doesn't necessarily have to have a flag. But it does have a language. And it does have a culture. And we as a holy nation, meaning the church of the living God, the body of Christ, we have a language. And we have a culture too, don't we? That's how you and I are a nation. 
So we're a chosen people. That sets us apart because we are chosen by God because we have believed, okay? And we are a royal priesthood for reasons that we already mentioned. And we are also a holy nation. And where should your first loyalty be? To the nation you're a part of, right? So well, I was born an American, so my loyalties to be, should be to America. Well, yes, and they are. So that's the beautiful thing about America. So long as it's still friendly to Christianity, uh, we can actually be quite loyal to them both. And that's not a divided loyalty because they lay more or less right on top of one another, okay? Those loyalties. And they, they blend beautifully and quite nicely and all of that. Now, should that ever change at a future time? Well, we'll just have to cross that bridge if we come to it, if and when we ever come to it. Pray that we don't. And that maybe that's a selfish prayer, but I don't mind. I don't mind being selfish on that. But a holy nation, our first loyalties are to God and Christ. Our first loyalties are to him who died for us, or we couldn't be part of it. A peculiar people. We could talk more about that. He says, a peculiar people. Now, that's the fourth and the last thing that he mentions here in verse 9. So a chosen generation, royal priesthood, a holy nation. And we could talk more about you know, what that means because the operative word there is holy, not so much nation, but it's the descriptive. Holy. We're a holy nation. We're set apart. And as being set apart, we live apart. It doesn't mean we're so separatist that we go out there and we live on communes, okay? Because we are called to be in the world. You know, but we're not of it any longer. So we're not chasing after its lusts and its false gods and its sins and its uncleanness and all that stuff, nor its vanities either. So uh, there's, there's all of that to consider. But then he says this, a peculiar people. Well, that's a loaded phrase there too, isn't it? Peculiar. Well, how are we peculiar? Well, anybody ever given you sort of a sideways look because you prayed for your food in public? That's just one way we're peculiar because we are not ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ and we're not ashamed of who he is and what he is to us and what he's done in us. We're a peculiar people because we are, we are a people. We are a people that do not go the direction of the world. We're not the ones lusting after money. And so that's peculiar to people that do lust after money. It's not to say we don't need money and that we don't, we've all got jobs of one kind or another. You know, you've got to be able to make a living and get by in this world. But, you know, we're people that aren't trying to philander and jump in bed with everything other than our spouse. And that's peculiar to some people who are. We're people that aren't going out and partying every Friday night or Saturday night like so many others are, and so we'll, we're peculiar to them. And there's very few environments where, where, in American culture, I think, where you, see this, where you see this contrast so starkly demonstrated as in the military. You, show, you find some young GI that just got saved that still lives in the barracks, you will see this peculiar people part. Uh, you will see that demonstrated with like blinding light. You will see the difference between that guy and everybody else around them in the barracks. Not to try to bring it too much of military culture, but I lived in it for a while, a long time ago, and so it still, it still uh, comes to mind as a good example of this. We don't go the way of other people. We don't have the same priorities as them, and so we do differently because we are different, and that makes us 
peculiar. Now, there's a good kind of peculiar and a, and, and a bad kind of peculiar, okay? And we want to make sure that we're, we're peculiar for the right reasons. We don't want to be peculiar because we're that weirdo walking around uh, demonstrating in front of the courthouse all by ourselves with, with a repent the end is at hand sign. It's like, that'll make you peculiar, but it really doesn't help the cause. You know what I mean? We're peculiar because of the way that we live. We're peculiar because, sisters, you don't, you guys aren't doing a lot of what most other worldly women are doing in trying to, you know, maintain looks and beauty and attractiveness and all this. And you need to take care of yourselves, but, you know, you're not, you're not sinking a third of your paycheck into the beauty industry. You know what I mean? Why? Because your confidence is in Christ. And so you're not, you're not ate up with that vanity anymore. That makes you very peculiar in the eyes of most of your worldly counterparts. Because to them, that's, that's top priority. Now, there's other, other examples of that that apply a bit more to the male side of things. It's not, you know, it's not wrong to want to make yourself presentable. But you start crossing the line into vanity and pride and all that other sort of thing. That's where you've kind of, you've kind of swung and you missed. And you've missed the mark. What's supposed to be most important to us? We are all of these things being believers on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're chosen, an entire chosen generation. So that sets us apart from baby boomers, Generation X, Generation Y, Generation Z, millennials, wherever that falls in the midst of them, and what and what and whatever's been born now. That sets us, that takes us outside of that whole pale and sets us into our own generation. And that's why we are. Brethren and sisters. We're a royal priesthood. means we've got a job to do. We're a holy nation. We're set apart. We need to stay set apart. We need to stay set apart. And we're a peculiar people. Because we just don't do all the same things that everybody else does. You're in a Bible study on a Tuesday night. That makes you peculiar. Why? Because the word of God's valuable to you. And the company of the saints is valuable to you. Why? Well, it's the, the, the answer to that is right here in the second half of verse 9. He says, That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, which in time past, we'll add verse 10 to it, because it's, it's the same sentence, which in time past were not a people. Now look at us in here. We, under that old standard, none of us were a people. What were we? You know, what kind of roots did we have going back to the old country? And who among us even cared about that? And what did we have in common with each other? But in Christ, we who were not a people, you could have took the same five of us 40 years ago. You could have taken us all and put us in a room and we weren't a people. We were just, we would just been five random people. But in Christ, we are now a people. That's what he's saying here. Ye which were not, in time past, were not a people, but are now the people of God. What's our identity? We're Christians. Now that's not a proud boast. That's by the grace of God, all right? And that's by the will of God and by the grace of God, okay? We're Christians. We are the people of God. And that's what makes all of us the same. And that's why a black brother and a white brother and a Mexican brother and a Puerto Rican brother and a Chinese brother, okay, can all get together in a church and worship the same God and be brothers one with another because it is a different kind of blood that unites us. 
Now we are the people of God. Now we are, we're our own people now. Praise God for that. Really? Praise God for that. He said, now we're the people of God, which had not obtained mercy. That was in our old life, but now have obtained mercy. And that actually ties into another prophecy in another place. And I didn't write down that note, but that's what we are. So in this particular time of, of identity politics that we're living in now, where all of our politicians and our schools of ideology and schools of thought are trying to divide us along every line that we can possibly be divided on, we are united in all of this. We're united. And none of those things have to divide us. We're not a black church. We're not a white church. We're not a Hispanic church. We're just a church. We have no care or concern. We are all of this. And we're all of this together. And it's a large degree of what defines who and what we are now. So let's be all of this. Let's be chosen. Let's be a royal priesthood. Let's be a holy nation. And let's be a peculiar people. You know, whenever I say peculiar people, I think of somebody walking around with those, you know, those antennas, those springy antennas that you put on your head and just being goofy or those, those springy eyes. You remember those? Those googly eyes they used to make? We don't want to be that kind of peculiar. We're, we're trying to be a good kind of peculiar. You know, people see, they see your marriage and they see it actually lasting and they think, wow, what are they doing? You know, they see your life. They see your peace. They see your contentment. They see that you have a walk with God. And so that's what's peculiar. But it's also something that's pretty attractive. And it ought to attract the lost. They ought to want the same thing. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.